Because apparently this is for like, you know, I'm so wasted that, you know, I can't even think about how to use Uber. So it'll just, you know, <laughs> trigger, trigger well, the Uber app and presumably have a like, Hey everybody, welcome to episode 128 of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm Tim Mitra and I'm in Toronto, Ontario. I'm joined by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And I'm also joined by Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hello. Alrighty. So Jaime, you posted some Ask MTJC here. You want to fill us in? Yes, this is from Sean Marston um, asking us, uh, with Fabric going to the dark side, what are your recommendations for continuous integration, analytics, and etc. tools? Buddy built. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a, a, a good answer, right? Um, and fair disclosure, that's been a, a you know, sponsor, sponsor of this podcast before. Um, but everything I hear about using it, you know, seems to all fit really well. And I think just for completeness, I would also look at something like Circle CI, which is also something I've heard pretty good about. And I'll, I'll have to say I've, I've not been in professional circumstances where we've used these, but um, my current gig using uh, Jenkins is just not making me happy so uh, definitely going to be yeah, pushing yeah. for a change there yes we used we used mr jenkins as well Are you into the whole latsin workflow over there latsin no we, we don't use jira we use uh github issues and and something on top of github called zen hub that gives you sort of a trello style kanban board um right right and i think part of that is because of the fact that we use and the enterprise version of github so like we self-host internally our our code so that product tends to lag a little bit behind the latest and greatest on the public externally available GitHub. Right. right. And I haven't, I haven't personally used uh, Crashlytics, but I know that, you know, a lot of people do use it. And uh, I sort of tore the gap on the fact that it was part of the whole fabric framework that's gone over to it's Google, right? It's taken over that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the uh, quoting here, dark side that's being referred to. Um, like, I'm not sure that I necessarily agree that like Google is, darker side than let's say twitter um i guess if they were to go rogue they certainly would be perhaps more competent on that because they have so much more data but i think with fabric it's really hard to, to say so if you're going for pure crash reporting that's one thing if you're going for the analytics piece that's another it, it kind of ties them all together really nicely and that you know using fabric right now and it's it's great especially the new the new dashboard so as an alternative i guess you could stitch together something from, let's say, like um, Hockey App for your crash reporting, but replacing mm-hmm. replacing Fabrics Analytics without going to Google's Analytics through Firebase. If you're, you know, not considering going the the, the Google route, you know, as the dark side, I'm not 100 percent certain. Like, do, do you guys know what other things are are sort of out there that would be pretty comparable? Well, I use Hockey App for crash reporting as well, but that's kind of dark side-ish as well these days. It's now owned by Microsoft. Um, oh, really? Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for analytics, I, I still generally stick with Mixpanel. Yeah, there was that new Relic thing. I tried that years ago. I don't know if they're still around. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, they And, and Flurry is another one that people use a lot, right? For- I've I used Flurry in the past, but they got acquired by Yahoo. Uh, <laughs> and, and I felt that they... They didn't kind of, they didn't really keep up with uh, some of the other engines in, in terms of the the real time analytics. Uh, for example, with with Mixpanel, you can be watching a, a dashboard and and uh, you know do something in the app to to trigger a, an event an analytic event, and it it shows up in the dashboard you know, a couple of seconds later. It's very fast. 
Yahoo or Flurry did, didn't have anything like that last time I looked at it. It may now. I, I don't know, but I have, but didn't at the time. Yeah, so like I, I haven't really used very much. I mean, we do also have um, in some of our apps um, the Google Analytics, and it does a very sort of – it doesn't do any sort of symbolicated crash reporting, but it does indicate that there are problems with uh, the apps and stuff. Mind you, that's using the, the traditional Google Analytics, not the Firebase version of it, right? I do have a follow-up item here that's kind of related in, in, in that I was going to talk about replacing iAd with AdMob, which turned out to be, you know, uh, obviously a Google thing. But it, I was surprised when I went to implement it um, that it, it included, I had to include all the Firebase stuff as well um, to get that in there. So um, I didn't really look at using any analytic stuff um, to replace the Google stuff that I'd done before, but I thought it was interesting that when I uh, did that, and I'm using CocoaPods in another project that we used Google Analytics in before, and it brought all the Firebase stuff over as well. So, mm. yeah. I was going to say, yeah, just like the way that Fabric brought together like all the tooling that was Crashlytics and, and these other bits together, Firebase is very clearly doing the same thing within Google's product offering where you, you get the analytics, you get the database, you get so on and so forth. You know, and, and now pretty soon everything that Crashlytics offered as well. So uh, I think if you wanted it just for a single thing, that's, that's rather unfortunate. But if you're kind of, <laughs> you know, one-stop shopping, uh, this sort of thing, it makes sense, especially from their perspective. But from a tooling point of view, though, if you're using Fabric uh, um, Analytics or whatever it's called, or sorry, I know what it's called, it's called Crashlytics. But if you're using that now, isn't that going to be part of Firebase's offering in a sense? Or do you think they're going to wipe it out and replace it with their own? I'm not 100% certain what's going to happen there. Um, I mean, these were or are cross-platform, uh, talking about iOS and Android at the very least, tools. And right, right. The same is true for Firebase. So I don't know. I don't know how they're going to handle like the migration of things uh, like dashboards and upgrading your, your switching from one version to another. Will they just kind of seamlessly route things as a migration path? Right. I mean, there's no reason to say that, you know, once those servers become Google owned, that they couldn't just, you know, hide that under the covers for you and then say, oh, well, version, you know, I don't know what version Firebase is on, you know, version 3.x of Firebase is now the requirement, and we're going to deprecate these other ones, including the Fabric and Crashlytics users. That might be one way they go about it. Right, and if you're using a dependency man manager like um, CocoaPods, or which a lot of people do to install these kind of tools, or uh, Carthage, then um, if Google changes the, the the APIs or whatever, they'll they'll do the same thing for going forward and you probably won't notice and maybe you'll have to change a couple of method names and that kind of stuff right as they get deprecated yeah probably and and i think firebase is swift compatible if i'm not mistaken so i think mm -hmm, that's okay mm -hmm. too so you're not sort of stuck with like an objective c only route um although i don't know if they offer an objective c version for folks who are staying pure with objective c with the firebase yeah um, I mean, I guess you well, could use it with interop, but then like now you sort of take the pain, like, compilation pain that I feel very, very deeply in my heart related to Swift as much as I love other aspects of Swift. <laughs> compilation is not one of them. Yeah, that's, uh, let's take a while. Yeah. Well, like I said, I just, uh, I just, I can have a quick look at my code here because uh, I just uh, updated a project with um, Google Analytics and CocoaPods and let's see what uh, Firebase has brought over for me. 
I had to change some some method names because uh, and you know it showed up in the in the um, what's that thing called issue navigator um, that uh, I had to change some some deprecated method names for the Google Analytics part, which I think was part of the migration from Google Analytics to Firebase Analytics, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But was it smooth and, and seamless, relatively speaking? Like you were you were looking to replace IAD in in your Pi Day Countdown app. Um, yeah, was yeah. this? I mean. Like you were ripping your hair out, and it took you three months to do. No, actually, was it, oh yeah. man! Like I just changed one thing, went to make a sandwich, and by the time I finished the sandwich, it was done. Yeah, it was. I didn't even have time to make the sandwich. Um, so yeah, it was. Uh, it was pretty painless. Um, I think the only challenge I had was I, I didn't use CocoaPods in this particular app, um, and it's been six months. Right, I think they closed the doors on June on, uh, for IAD. Um, so yeah, I, I've, I've been meaning to move it over to uh, to AdMob, and um, yeah, so it was just a matter of getting the CocoaPod installed, and then um, it was uh, change a couple of things. They even use the same names, you know, like I think I've got like a an ad banner or something like that as a, as the object name, and they use pretty much the same thing, and just change a couple change a couple of names, and Bob's your uncle, and it had you know it fits into the same space as the as the um, ad banner uh, piece that uh, Xcode includes, right? So it was pretty pretty painless. Didn't have to change any constraints or anything like that. It just automatically worked. And again, I add is Pi Day Countdown is is one of my novelty apps, and I use it. I use some of these apps to to try out some frameworks. Right? Um, what were you, you were joking the other day about making it into uh, what was the word you used? Yeah, uh, um, I think I said make it into a boondoggle of an app yeah, where every but, new technology but, that comes out, you know, it uses yeah. you know core motion. It uses three yeah. D touch. Um, it uses continuity and handoff. You know, yeah. it's Apple got Pay, Apple Pay in pack. there somewhere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I could do. I could. It's a pretty small app, so. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was it was it was super super simple. Like if you're, I already had a Google and I already had a Google account. So and I think I'd already signed up for AdMob a while ago, um, because I think knowing that I was going to come in here. So I think I think probably setting up the Google account was probably the hardest part. Um, although that was done years ago, but yeah, it was, it was super simple changing from, from one framework to the other. They've, they've obviously thought about that and, and, uh, you know, crib, cribbed all the names, right? So Mark, you use, you were using IAD and AdMob at one point in something. Yeah. A long time ago, uh, I was using IADs and AdMob, uh, and, uh, used, oh, I can't even remember what it was called anymore, but, but Google had a aggregator that, uh, that would let you that would you know would swap out a dyad or or a or an ad mob or, or if there were a couple of other of them as well. Uh, but I, I haven't done that in some time, uh, and uh, the apps that were using that uh, pretty much just stopped serving ads completely. Uh, right, right. They were low volume. Yeah, maybe I should fire that up because a couple of those apps are. I mean, they're, they're actually re- still reasonably good uh, sellers. They're, they're kind of the free version of some of my other apps. And uh, they, they have reasonably good volume. I should turn that on again. So a friend of mine who, who's got iAds and he he had, was getting better than pizza money from, every month. Uh, it switched over from iAd to AdMob in his app, and he's getting the same amount of pizza money that he was getting before. Because it was filling more impressions with, with AdMob ads instead of or, uh, iAds, I suppose. I guess they're the same. Did they, yeah. did they not pay out? I guess they pay out differently, a different scale? Back when I was using it a lot, they paid a very, very different rates uh iads was actually much higher at the time uh but it was but it was new so they were probably trying to to drum up a lot of business back then this is a couple right, of years ago right yeah yeah sure yeah sure. 
So a couple of other follow-up items I had. Last week, we talked a bit about ColorSync. And um, so as I was doing the notes, I discovered that um, Apple does have a ColorSync manager framework that you can use. I think this is for uh, Mac OS um, apps. but uh, So I've included in the show notes a a document reference for ColorSync management. Um, That was one. The other follow-up item I put on here was we talked about a while ago about CarPlay and Google Audio, I think it's called, or infotainment pretty much. Um, And this came across my desk for LinkedIn because a colleague of mine is the spokesperson for Hyundai Canada. And he was uh, quoted in this article in the Global Mail about um, why it's, and the answer to the question is why why is it taking so long for CarPlay and Google Play to Google Audio to catch up? And it talks about the different manufacturers. You know, Toyota's not doing anything. They're a bit like Apple. They want to do it right the first time. Um, Hyundai's got it on the plans. And the challenge are, are that uh, the software and things like that and, and the way they interface with the cars is actually written by Google and Apple, and that's part of a problem. They're, they're about two years behind where iPhones are, or sorry, mobile phones are. Um, and uh, so it's hard to compete with that, you know, like, and, and, you know, as we talked about the experience of using um, CarPlay, sometimes it can take a couple of minutes to boot up and it's just faster to just, you know, use a, use a phone for, um, for your infotainment in your, in your car, right? So. So if you're interested in it, it's, a, it's kind of a long read that does talk about the the pain points that the car industry has gone through to get um, infotainment into our cars. It, it is kind of a tough situation. It seemed like they went on a lot of the themes we talked about that, you know, th- this sort of stuff moves on a relatively slow cycle. Um, yeah. And so I think it's just going to take time. And it's not as if people are buying cars every day or every exactly. week or every they year. They don't buy a new car every year like they do with a, with a phone. Yeah, so, yeah. So the cycle is definitely longer. Mm-hmm. And they keep them much longer, too. People keep cars for 10, 15 years sometimes. You know? So so they have to make the technology uh, survive reasonably well for that, that time frame. Unlike a phone, you know, a two-year-old phone is already kind of out of date, a three-year-old phone. So nobody really cares if, if uh, the technology from three years ago doesn't work anymore. In, in the or it doesn't work well. There were some interesting numbers in the middle of this article too. They talk about um, the difference between the rest of the world. Um, worldwide, apparently, Android is in 82% of people's hands. This is phones. And uh, Apple around 15% or so. Mm-hmm. And but in, but in Canada, the United States, is more of a 50-50 split amongst people yeah. who buy new cars, right? Um, and then they talk about the fact there's 32 million vehicles on the road worldwide. Um, th- with CarPlay in them, and 22 million in with Android Auto. auto Android Auto um, is it Auto or Audio? I think it's Auto Android. because it's not just Audio, but Google gets kind of weird with its marketing name. So wait a while, and maybe they will change it to Android Audio. For all I know. Yeah, and so they sort of expect like the, some of the numbers they, they speak to, like by 2020, 2022, they expect 160 million vehicles out there to be around with CarPlay, but I'm sure there'll be more phones than that out there. Um, yeah, so it just sort of said that, you know, uh, just some of the catch-up that's having to be done, the fact that it's harder to get um, these screens that have to require pinch and zoom uh, into existing models, that's quite a, as Mark said in, when we first talked about this, that's quite an engineering feat to sort of change the design of the dashboard and that kind of stuff, right? So they wouldn't retrofit existing cars. They'd have to do it in new models, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I didn't say my friend's name. His name is Chad Hurd. He's the PR guy. For, that's how it ended up. He's the PR guy for uh, Hyundai Canada. So, hey, Chad. <laughs> um, okay. What else is not what we're talking about here? One more follow-up item, I think, right? 
Safari's taking a do- nosedive on me. This seems like a good segue to say, well, if you were like me and you use Google Chrome, not only would it not be taking a nosedive on you now, but apparently you'd be getting 18 hours of freaking battery life on your MacBook Pro. <laughs> so, I'm not saying you got to change, but there are alternatives. So Safari is, is a battery dra- battery drain? Is that what you're saying through that? I mean, rem- remember Consumer Reports thing right, where they, yeah. they, they flicked the, the magic switch that apparently had a bug in it that caused the MacBook, the new MacBook Pro to get terrible battery life. But they, they somehow got insane battery life with Chrome, which just doesn't make any sense. It's a battery hog. I, I, just, <laughs> I know it's a battery hog. Just for fun, I just clicked on my, my uh, battery indicator on my Mac, and the two apps that are using significant energy are Safari and Skype. Hmm. Hmm. So, and that's all that's listed. So Safari seems to be a hog. Even on a non-brand new MacBook Pro. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, as you said, I can I can sort of give some feedback too. I've been I've been doing some testing on the um, writing some unit tests on the new MacBook Pro, and I'm you know of course you write a couple of tests and then you compile uh, through the testing uh, framework to to uh, get it to run your tests right. And I can tell you that the the compiling is really really slow. Like not not painfully slow. Not not don't go out and buy one slow, but but it's noticeably different between that and a and a twenty fifteen a MacBook Pro. So, oh really? The the new one is slow is a lot slower than the old one. Yeah, it's it's you know perception is nine tenths of the law as I like to say, but um, yeah, it's it's it does definitely seem to be a lot slower. Like I, it's something I would notice, you know, and like you know you normally hit you know command and run and or, or build and run or mm-hmm. or even um, you know command shift U for running tests and. It's generally pretty good, but this is, yeah, I've been noticing it's, it seems to be a lot slower than I'm used to doing in the wow. past. And I still have the other, I still have the other one there. I could actually probably do a side by side. That would be pretty compare. interesting. And yeah. you know, to see if there's, if there, are there certain steps or certain stages in the compilation process that are taking a long time or, or yeah, it's just I across could, the board, everything is slower. Yeah. Is it apples to oranges? Do you have the same stuff running on both machines? Well, actually, you know, I, I, so I haven't I haven't wiped my other machine. I have to wipe it and assign it to somebody else. But I, I have mm-hmm. it still in my drawer, so I can I can actually load actually the same uh, code base and, and run them simultaneously. So maybe I'll do that tomorrow. We'll see how it comes out. Uh, another thing to to note is is the same version of Xcode um, on both yeah, machines. Oh yeah, well I just I just updated the um, Mac Pro to the latest, which is eight point two one or something. Right. That's the latest, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, full, uh, officially released version. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. there's a new beta actually just came out yesterday, eight point three. Well, we're going to talk about that in the next. That's a good, oh, okay. a good segue okay. for me. Yeah, yeah because yeah, um, yeah. Uh, we were talking about AirPods a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking about the cost of replacing them. And apparently, in the new beta that Mark's talking about, um, Apple's added the ability to find my AirPods. Did you guys see? Did you see that? Yeah, I saw the chatter yeah. uh, about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're obviously Bluetooth devices, so if you lose them, you know, within 9 or 30 feet or whatever it is of your phone, you've got to go oh, 5 to 10 meters, it says. Um, sorry, is that, how many feet is that? Sorry. <laughs> I, I always just... It's like 30 feet. It. Yeah. I'm like, well, a meter is about a yard, and I know, I know football fields rather the, well, yeah. so, you know, about 30 years. Where's Tammy when we need to do math? Yeah, exactly. More yeah, right. yards. Yeah, so yeah, so it's five to ten meters, uh, according to this article here. Yeah, and, and so I mean, you, apparently you can find your your uh, lost AirPod. That won't help the guy that who dropped his into the uh, Tokyo subway st- uh, line the other day. Yeah, no, it won't help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> the the reaction to this was a little bit 
sort of funny to me. Like, and I say this as somebody with no skin in the game because I don't own any AirPods, but I saw folks coming up with like increasingly crazy scenarios around it. I'm like, come on, like, look, it's supposed to be, hey, I dropped it. Let's say like in the snow, right? It's the winter time as we're recording this. Where the heck did it go? Well, you just pull out your phone and make it start beeping. Very similar to what I recently had to do when I couldn't find my phone, right? I said, okay, well, I'm wearing my watch. Let me make the phone beep. Oh, there it is. Somehow it ended up underneath the couch, right? Uh, you know, reasonably close. If it's, yeah. oh, no, it, 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 it's, it's not going to work like find my track. iPhone <laughs> where, where somebody steals your, your AirPods that you, you'll be able to go to their house and track it down. I don't think it'll work like that. Yeah, like, people wanted sort of, like, GPS integrated into it. Like, oh, look, it ended up in Indonesia, right? right? Because it ended up on a boat when I was jogging right. on the waterfront. Or uh, or in the opposite direction, where people wanted micro stuff. Like, well, it won't tell you where in your house. I'm like, really? Do you know how hard micro-location is as a problem? Like, just be happy you can hear it in your house. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's like, exactly, oh, no, yeah. there you go. It's it's on the coffee table in the upstairs bedroom. Isn't that, isn't that how that Marco Polo game works? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it would be, you'd be better off having it just play a loud song uh, if it's somewhere in your house, and then just you know, listen really closely, and then you'll be able to go find it. Right, oh, right. A it, it's, it's a headphone, right? So it, it it makes noise. That's true. Yeah, I had heard some battery issues about them too. Had you heard guys heard that, or was I imagining that? Mm, can you be more specific? Like, like <laughs> yeah, different than some... what has been advertised? Yeah, I don't know. I just I'm trying to I'm trying to think. I didn't find a link for it, but I, I saw something go by the other day about um, people having problems with the batteries in them or charging. Well, actually, you know, I just uh, in our our um, what the iPhone means to me thing. I I asked George about. I was asking about Apple Music, and he was telling us that the, it was at the end of the taping. We basically uh, he was using his iPad because we couldn't get Skype connected, and and he had the new Air, AirBuds in, and he was AirPods in. He was saying that um, he kept getting warnings as we we're getting closer to the end of the show that his AirPods were running out of out of battery. So it was kind of interesting. That's a new new technology problem, new first world problem, because he was saying that you know if he had you know his regular earbuds, he wouldn't he'd just still be going right. He wouldn't have been looking at this this uh, warning that you're going to lose uh, juice to your AirPods. Yeah, I mean it yeah. gets like about I think they said what five ish hours um, mm, on a charge, right. but then it recharges up to like three hours worth within fifteen minutes or something. So I think if you were using them in a normal like office environment, you could wear them on your commute. And then, you know, let's say another four-ish hours until you get to lunchtime, put them away for lunchtime or like coffee break, smoke break, bathroom break, depending on what's happening there. And then you should be more or less ready to go the rest of the day uh, through your commute. But I can see that if you have them constantly in that, you know, this V1 may not be quite for you if that's the sort of scenario where you, you can't take them out for some period of time to recharge them. Yeah, well, we were on the call for like an hour and a half by that time. So that might. So you're saying like the the four hours is is sort of total charge time or or total runtime? What's that? No yeah, way. I think it's like four to five hours if I remember correctly. But then you know you put them back in the battery case and you'll get another like three to four hours um, with a 15 minute charge. And then I think you can recharge it a couple times if I'm not mistaken before the battery case itself. The little the one we said that looks like yeah, um, the pest dispenser. Yeah. Well, not not to pest. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, it, it looks like dental floss. Dental floss. There you go. That's what it was. I had it in my head. I couldn't think of it. <laughs> so it, it, it just dawned on me: these things run off batteries. Like I guess rechargeable batteries. They don't. They don't have like a USB connection or something like that for the um, charge box. Or do we not know for the box itself? Or are you talking for about the, the AirPods for the charger? 
For the charger, yeah. The charger connects uh, with a lightning cable, so it has an internal battery that's rechargeable. Oh, it's a rechargeable battery. Okay, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but so anyway, that's my follow-up on the um, AirPods. Still haven't got used to saying AirPods. I want to say AirBuds. Yeah, AirBud was the was the dog that played um, basketball. <laughs> <laughs> that was not an Apple product, though, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Mark, you got to have one more follow-up item here. On yeah. The- so we've been talking about Apple Pay pretty much since it came out, even before it came out. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a big user of it. I, lo- I love it. So yeah, me some, too. New, some new analytics came out uh, from a company called TXN uh, that's got some pretty good news saying that Apple Pay usage for the past year grew 50%, uh, which, is, which is pretty nice. And they're saying that, well, actually, Apple is saying that now 35% of U.S. retailers support Apple Pay, something like 4 million locations, mm. which is great. I'd like to see it be even higher, but uh, it's, it seems to be slowly but surely gaining support. I, I am seeing it more and more often as, as I'm out and about, and I uh, use, uh, use it quite a bit. So, um, oh, in fact, uh, looking at the article here, uh, Hotel Tonight, which was which was a pick of mine a couple of couple of months or years ago now uh, is saying that 3.4% of their business is through Apple Pay now, which is really interesting. Mm. Now this is just tap to pay, right? Like, is that not what you guys are using in the U S of a? Well, there's, so there's two different modes, right? There's tap to pay. And then there's, and then there's uh, using it at uh, brick and mortar sites. Right. 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 So, uh, so according to uh, the article, I'll quote, Apple recently revealed that some 35% of U.S. retailers now support Apple Pay, totaling some 4 million locations. So I'm assuming that that's brick and mortar. Yeah, so what we call tap yep. to pay up here north of the border mm-hmm. is is uh, basically if you have a, a card, debit card or a credit card with a chip in it, yep. um, you can sometimes slide it into the thing and enter your PIN. Or if it has tap to pay, it has an NSC chip in it, you can just lay the card down on top of their reader. And that's how my app, my uh, watch works as well. I double tap the the wide button and it brings up the, the card on there and I just, you know, tr- invert my wrist and make contact or in your field contact with uh, the thing and i feel a buzz a haptic feedback and the pace the pace gone through so oh right sure yeah any any like just about everywhere there's very few places that have um it's now it's like the difference between black and white and color tv now you're just seeing you know people write no tap on their little uh, card reader machine now right and and it's where i work it's pretty rare to, to find places that don't have tap right hmm yeah, and I think I mentioned before I left my phone upstairs in the office one day, and I went down, and I didn't have, didn't have any way of paying, and and basically I was able to use my watch without having the phone anywhere nearby, which was kind of cool. Oh, really? Yeah, I think it's, it probably registers the 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 token in the in the phone, right, or in the watch, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So very cool. Yeah, so I use my watch all the time for Apple Pay. I guess you, you can use your phones too. I use that occasionally when if I forget my phone, my watch, right? So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I still don't wear a watch, so I use. Uh, I use my phone. So chip-based car payments and, and near-field communication payments aren't available everywhere in the States? or They're not available everywhere, no. no. They're available in lots of places, but not everywhere, for sure. Right, and so are you specifically looking for the Apple Pay logo when you go to a register or to pay for an item? No, I don't specifically look for it, but if it's available, I use it, generally. Right, right. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I just look hmm. for the NFC logo, um, and you can kind of tell from the readers normally. You know, they have the little mm-hmm. area that 
it's either big and flat or it's kind of cupped to take the the phone. Um, right, right. I, I always wear my Apple Watch, so I almost never pay with my um, with my phone. I usually use my watch. I'm looking at this uh, nifty chart they have here at the bottom of the article about the the share of credit card transactions and. It actually kind of makes sense that if you kind of look at it as, you know, higher income folks going to higher income, costlier places yeah. tend to be <laughs> using like Whole, Whole Foods are very high up there. Pete's Coffee is a very you know, trendy and Phil's Coffee, too. Mm-hmm. This is clearly a Bay Area chart because uh, both of those are big here in the Bay Area. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I had to look up. I'm, I'm probably going to butcher the name because it's probably not. It's probably not Dwayne Reed. It's probably like Duan Red or something. I, I don't. <laughs> I don't know that one either. I don't yeah, know that, that one myself. I, I looked yeah. it up on Wikipedia, and that is a subsidiary of Walgreens. It's a uh, chain of pharmacy okay. and convenience stores, primarily located in New York City. Oh, okay, okay. In yeah. Midtown Manhattan, so probably a, a pricier place. So it kind of makes sense that getting back to the, you know, is NFC sort of everywhere in the U.S. and you know, it's it's really not. But the places that have spent the money to upgrade on it are going to tend to be the higher margin places. Right, right. I mm-hmm. mean, looking at looking at this list, probably the lowest margin place is probably Starbucks, and they have an enormous margin. But yeah, it's good news. I mean, they mentioned in the article here about the the in app stuff, which I think is important for folks to sort of keep in mind that it's not just about physical store stuff, uh, which I think most people sort of really key in on because that was like the sexy one that they showed off in um in the demonstrations and it's the most obvious sort of like have and have nots like you can't participate um in mm-hmm. it unless you have you know at least a, a six and uh, and greater but if you've got a 5s you can participate in the in-app one and i've used that all the time to to pay for movie tickets for example yeah you missed it mark last week i was um looking at something on um Oh, it was a Kickstarter, and I got a, an Apple Pay uh, offer, and I was able to, you know, oh. you know, I was on my phone, and I was actually able you to know, pay with my uh, with my thumbprint, as it were. So, oh, nice. Cool. There's an article here on Apple Canada about Apple Pay, about the places that are accepting, but I can tell you that I've used it, you know, up in, up at the cottage or whatever, like in really remote areas, wherever they, wherever I could find uh, anywhere that has uh, t- tap to pay for us. So it's not, it's not specifically Apple Pay, per se, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I, I mean, there was some big news yesterday came out. I heard about it on Slack. So why don't you fill us in on what's going on with developer stuff? Yeah, um, as as was mentioned, you know, the betas came out for um, macOS and iOS. Uh, but really importantly, in the release notes, is mentioned the fact that oh, by the way, when ten point three is av- of iOS is available, um, and I can't remember the number for macOS, but when that version comes out uh, out of beta developers for the first time ever will be able to publicly respond on their respective app stores to customer reviews, which has been a long time, uh, you know, sticking point, I think for a lot of developers. Yeah, I think this is huge. I and mean, this is, this mm-hmm. is really a big hole in, in the way the apps are worked. And, and, uh, this goes a long way to fix that. It would be nice if we were able to contact a commenter or a customer directly uh, to answer some kind of specific concern or, or, or take a conversation, you know, offline, not public, uh, which you still won't be able to do with this. But but still, it's a huge, huge step forward. I mean, there's there's so many cases where you get a crazy one star review that has just no 
no basis in reality or or was it seems like it was written for a different app or something like that everyone's gotten those uh, and up to yeah. now there's kind of nothing you can do so at least now you'll be able to reply and, and do something so this is great yeah and it seems like it's it's somewhat limited and that it's not like a threaded reply either. I think it's a single reply from the developer. And my understanding is that both parties can edit their, you know, the, the one customer view and the developer reply. So I guess you could sort of work around it a little bit. I don't know if there's any mm. limits around that, but at the very least it's, I look at this as very positive as like, this is better than nothing, which is what we had yep. before. Right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Where yeah. now you can say, Oh, if they say, Oh, one star doesn't let me do X. It's like, well, Actually, X is the other Actually, it button. It's the big red button <laughs> on the other side of the button that you clearly pressed to get here. But hey, you shiny know candy-like button. You know what? The, the the UX issues are on my side, which I will continue to refine. However, let me help you because I don't want you to be unhappy, right? I can say, oh no, actually, it does do feature X. Just press the big red button. And at the very least, you can say, please contact me at such and such. You know, if you need more help, and and, and try to initiate a conversation that way, which hopefully people will respond to. It's just one step up from a discussion or a forum kind of thing, right? Because it's going to be like, and you can't flame them back because they're going to, it's all going to be visible to the public everywhere, right? On the App Store. Yeah, yeah. But, but the reason I think this will help is that from what I've seen through, through a lot of customer reviews is that customers tend to have the feeling that developers are very often just a, a black box and, and they don't respond, yeah. they don't care, and they're just trying to, trying to get your money, you know, and don't care about anything. Uh, and and for the most part, the complete opposite is true. I, I know I I would love to be able to interact with my customers and help them if they're having a problem and, sure, and turn yeah. them turn them into a happy customer. And and so I, I've put stuff into some of my apps where you know there's an easy way to contact me. And when people do that, if they contact me with a problem and I help them out, it turns out that they're the they're the happiest people, and they and they often mm-hmm. often follow up with kind of gushing reviews. So so I think that there's a desire just, well, to be acknowledged uh, for one thing and to get that kind of personal attention out of a developer. You know, a lot of a lot of customers just don't know that there is a way to contact the developer. There's a link in the app store or, or you know, you go to the website or whatever. Some people just don't, don't know that. So they just immediately go to the app store and they, and they write a bad review and get no response and just they walk away unhappy. So at least this right. will give them an acknowledgement of their problem and a, po- a potential channel, an easier channel at least to initiate a discussion to hopefully solve the problem. Yeah, you're right. I mean, cause but the thing about it is, is that, uh, you know, when somebody's having a problem with your app right now, they're, they're in your app, you know, sometimes like I looked at, um, Apptentive is another way to, to get feedback from people too, um, by adding that framework and, um, you know, they can, they can respond. It opens a dialogue with them right away. It looks very similar to what the screenshot here in the article that Jaime posted, um, looks like where, you know, you can sort of, it prompts you to say, Hey, do you like the app? And they can, it, it starts a doll. If they say, no, I hate it. Then, you know, it starts a dialogue with them and say, well, you know, can you, do you want to open a, a discussion and have a chat about it? And, uh, that sends it, that triggers an email back to the developer who can then go into the into the through Apptentive and have a dialogue with the with that person. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, I've only have been able to take advantage of that a couple of times, but uh, yeah. And I've had people uh, contact me through the support site, like you know, as you said, there's a support link, and if people follow it, it comes to a, hopefully a web page on your server that lets you have a contact form or something where they can send you a sh- you know, shoot you an email and ask a question. Yeah, yeah. 
that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, but you know that that assumes a certain amount of savviness on the part of the user, which isn't necessarily always there to even know that the link exists. Well, that's what I was sort of saying. Like, if it yeah. if it's work to go and find how to get support, yeah, you know, a people, lot of people won't do it. Yep. Yeah, or they just they just don't. They're not. They can be bothered. Like, you know, make a good pro- make a good product is their attitude, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and so I'm excited about this. I think it's great. <laughs> I think it'd be good because you know having that gap before. Let's see. A couple jobs ago, we would say, "Oh, wow, that's a severe problem." Well. Let's see their username. All right, well, let's look up in our database. Does this username exist, right? Did they reuse the same username? And sometimes we get lucky and say, oh, okay, well, that helped us figure out the problem because we can see the the chain of events that occurred for that user. Um, And at some point, I I jokingly said here on this podcast, like, well, maybe you could just go buy one of those, like, you know, advertising mailing lists and, like, do a look up in that and say, oh, yeah, we, we found this user because they use the same user <laughs> yeah. in their one-star apps review as they did uh, within our account. So I think this is a much better option than those. Uh, granted, yeah. uh, mm. as has been pointed out here and, and online, like, please don't blow your top on people, right? Like, you're just hurting not only them more, but you're hurting yourself because you'll just look really bad if you blow your top at a one-star review. That's true. That's well, true. publicly oh, yeah, yeah. blow your top. Yeah. You do all you want in private. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't seen any comments like that, but absolutely, it's right. Yeah, it's it definitely should not be a a uh, a forum for for getting revenge on a one star. Yeah, review. don't do don't do That's a flame war exactly. Right, yeah. right. Try to turn it, use it as a way to potentially turn it around and make it a positive thing. Yeah, I think I told you guys before. I had a, a somebody because of because of the name of my app, it got confused between what my app does and what another app that has a similar a feature they were looking for that my app doesn't do. And it was somebody somebody in the UK, and they had written a, a pretty bad review, like one star, and complained about the fact that you know the app didn't do what they thought it would do, right? And uh, um, so I, I contacted Apple and said, this guy, you know, doesn't, you know, isn't. This is my product isn't the one he was looking for, like Mark sort of said. It doesn't have this feature that he thought he assumed would be in there. And so he gave me a one star review and Apple removed the review. Yeah, they'll do that sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's always been a way to do, get that done, to get that uh turn around. But uh yeah, but you're like you said, it's it's really unfortunate that we can't have a conversation because like I said I've said on the podcast before and for customers who are listening to this podcast, you know, please let us know what's going on with our apps because uh we do really care about them and you know, we uh, we want to want you to be happy people. So reach out to us. Yep. So I wonder if you'll be able to put links like hyperlinks as this. Yeah, I wonder. Let's consider yeah. this situation, right? So let's take your hypothetical situation here, Tim, where you know there was somebody like, by golly, they wanted a blueberry pie, so they searched for Pie Day, a completely different Pie Day, <laughs> and then open yours like, what the heck is this countdown? I didn't get any pie, right? Like it seems right. like it's a long <laughs> yeah. way away. One star review. Could you put in a link to say, oh, I think you want it PIE day, and here I've conveniently linked it for you here in the App Store? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. By the way, it wasn't Pi Day, but there is a Pi Day story here, um, and that is that 2015 was a specifically, um, what do you call it, auspicious Pi Day because it started with uh, 1.5, or it ended with 1.5. So you could have done, you know, March, what is it, uh, March 14th, uh, 15, so it's uh, um, 31415, and then 9 a.m. 9, 9 o'clock, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, because the Pi Day I trigger is one fifty nine in the morning, right? Um, but this, in 2015, so that was, and, and I got, that was the most downloads I've ever had of Pi Day because of that auspicious uh, um, date, right? And the one review I got was the fact that I didn't, the, the the app didn't take 
care of the fact that it was, you know, 2015 and it had that special Pi Day, right? You know, which I, I didn't even know. And by the time I found out about it, it was like I, I wouldn't have been able to refactor the app to, to take, take advantage of that, right? Which leads me to this next post that you hear put here, Jaime. Is this a follow-up or a related story to this? It's related or, or real-time follow-up, depending how, uh, how you want to look at it. So speaking of reviews, there is, uh, in the 10.3 beta, there is a new um, a new class in StoreKit called uh, SK Store Review Controller. And it has pretty much just a single method that you're going to want to use. And that is the request review method where you can tell StoreKit to ask the user to rate or review your app. And rather than sort of kicking you out, you know, into the app store, it will give them a little prompt within the, uh, within the app and you can rate from right there. Right. So so kind of right, thinking of right. like those those app store sheets that you could do things you know, within an existing app rather than having to necessarily bounce to the store. This is kind of considering uh, following that same sort of concept. So this is great um, for the most part. I, I think uh, there's some things to be careful about. Um, one is that uh, this is going to be controllable by the user. So the user can go into settings, presumably somewhere and say, you barely, I don't want to ever get prompted by the system to rate the app or any app. Um, so consider that in your designs. Um, also, there's apparently some sort of throttling mechanism that they can use where I don't think it's listed here in the documentation, but it's been in other sources stating that you can ask up to three times per year. Um, that's critically not per version. Um, mm-hmm. And it's slightly unclear to me if there's going to be a similar change in the app store around the way that ratings are handled. So right now you're sort of disincentivized to push out your app too frequently because your uh, ratings reset, uh, not for the cumulative, but for the current version. So it kind of looks like you have nothing at all or heaven forbid you have just enough to show a rating and it's all like these one-star reviews of people finding the wrong app. Right. So I think that that's something for, for folks to consider that it's, um, it's kind of a giveth and uh, slightly taketh away sort of situation for this. It kind of replaces that uh, rate me kind of thing that people were putting in their in their apps where they were you know throwing up an alert view and probably doing it too frequently because maybe that's why Apple stepped up and decided to create an, an API for us to sort of limit the amount there. But mm-hmm. you know, because um, but we we talked about this actually when we first started the show that that the the rate me mechanism or the the request for reviews doesn't seem to, or doesn't seem to really work. You know, do you remember not having, we had that conversation a while ago and um, got down to the point where we started asking for uh, reviews in the what's new part of new releases. Remember that conversation? Yeah. And that's, that's sort of changed a bit over time. Um, especially as release notes have become a lot less critical because of, I'd say overwhelming majority of users based on the, the apps that I've been following through. Yeah, exactly. Or on auto update. Like I'm, I'm different. I'm very paranoid. So I go in and dutifully check to see what's going on. And and if it's a critical to my life app, I'll check the internet real fast to make sure they didn't break anything critical um, in the app. But that's me, right? Most people don't do that. Most people just let it seamlessly update. And I think, you know, in my experience, I've seen that if you do it reasonably well, which I think will will follow up into what Apple is trying to do here, then you can get really good results from it, and you can get massive reviews. 
a massive number of reviews. And, and I think Apptentive has been really helpful in that respect because it gives you um, a server controllable way to say, well, let's see if we can tune it slightly different. Maybe we're asking too frequently. Let's back it off. Or maybe we need to, you know, ask a little bit more aggressively because we're not getting enough reviews. Or maybe we should right. change the critical events that trigger a review. And that critical events part is something that I think you still have to think about with this because as is mentioned in the documentation, uh, I'll just read it here. Because this method may or may not present an alert, it's not appropriate to call it in response to a button tap or other user action, i.e. Right. there shouldn't just be a like rate this app sort of button that they press and then, oh, nothing happens because the user turned them off or they've hit their three times a year limit, right? It, it needs to be thought about in terms of what will make sense as a time for this user to do this sort of activity. And in my experience, it's been best if you do it around the time that they're happiest with your app, not that they've merely used it, you know, 10 minutes or that they've used it, you know, 10 times or something like something critically important. And yeah, if they've and, accomplished some major task, you know, they've reached some mm -hmm. major milestone or something inside the app and something that you mm -hmm. know, would take a little bit of effort or, or time or, or if it's a game, you know, they've, they've reached some milestone, something like that. That's a good time to do it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So looking at the documentation, it, it this is, I mean, it's still, it seems pretty simple. If anyone from Apple's listening, I, I've got a couple of great ideas. I, I think they're great of, of how this could be improved. One thing is it would be awesome if there would be a way to query whether the particular user has ever given a review in the past for this app and use that to not show this thing. So you can you can make the decision to show it or not based on whether they've ever given a review before on this app. Mm -hmm. yeah, it doesn't. I don't see a way to do that. I might be missing it, or maybe it, maybe it does it automatically. I, I don't know, but but it, I don't see anything in the documentation about that. And related to that, it would also be kind of cool. This would require some work on Apple's part uh, if you could get a probability of rating type of metric for the user. In other words, does this user based on all the other apps that they have, do they tend to write reviews or do they not tend to write reviews? And Apple could tell us that without giving up any private information. They could just give you a, yeah, you know, this person likes to give reviews, this person doesn't like to give reviews. Uh, and if the person doesn't like to give reviews, if you're pestering them about reviews, they're more likely to give you a, a bad review, it seems like. Uh, so you might want to not show the, 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 the uh, controller as often. Uh, whereas if the person does like to give reviews, then yeah, go ahead and show it because they're probably gonna they're probably gonna use it. Uh, the other thing I'd, I'd love to see, and and this one's probably less a lot less likely to happen, is if you could get a callback uh, with some information about how they reviewed it. Uh, was this a positive review? Was this a negative review? Uh, based on the number of stars, I guess. And you could take appropriate action inside your app. Say it's a negative review to. To prompt, you know, why didn't you like it, or or what could we have done better, or something like that, which you wouldn't need to do if it's a positive review. But again, I think that one's less likely to happen. But it would be kind of cool and useful. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I know they don't give away, um, you know, private information, but if they had a what was the stars review, you know, whether it was a one star or five star, right? It, it would right. be kind of hilarious uh, because they also. Uh, completely unrelated to this have given us an API where we can set alternate icons for the app. 
Mm. Oh, right. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. You can imagine giving somebody a frowny face if they give you a right. one-star review. <laughs> 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 I was like, bro, you don't even like my app. Just delete it already, man. Just, just cut yeah, it out. Like, why, yeah. why are you you're hurting both of us here? Yeah, no, that's an interesting thing. I, th- I know that um, uh, our friend of the show, um, Ryan McLeod, he adds new features in. He's, he, he did a Halloween release, so he had like a you know scary pumpkin kind of icon, and then he did another release for for uh, Christmas when he has a snowflake on there, or for winter, I guess. But um, yeah, now you can just basically change the icon as for for without changing the actual code, right? Is that the idea? I mean, it's it's baked in, so you couldn't do it remotely. But uh, I've not tried this out myself, but apparently in some sort of user controlled way, you can set the app icon. So I I could imagine like, I'm not sure what time of the year it is. It seems like it's close to the end of the the year, Um, maybe in the December timeframe. Uh, a lot of these apps participate in the red campaign for HIV and AIDS awareness and and Apple will feature in the app store and they all have like red icon uh, app icons. Um, I could see that being used for this sort of thing, right? For for big events, for um, holidays, you know, what have you, uh, charitable yep. charitable kind of things uh, like uh, Race for the Cure, uh, breast cancer awareness probably has pink apps, that sort of thing. Yeah, you tend to see those around Halloween a lot and Christmas. So how so how was that triggered? How many you were saying that you could have you'd put multiple app, multiple icons in your app? Is that the idea? You do, and then in, what is this, am I looking at, uh, UI application has a way to set alternate icon name, and there's even a completion handler version that, let's see, the completion handler, after attempting to change your app's icon, the system reports the results. So I'm I'm guessing, um, and I've not tried this myself, that if it somehow fails, or from what I've heard, and I could be incorrect, um, that it's in a user-controlled way. I guess if the user says no, or if they have a setting that says never allow alternate icons, uh, you'll find out as to whether it triggered or not. So you don't have a mismatch within your your app, right? If you if you tried to trigger it to to Christmas mode, um, you wouldn't want the app icon necessarily to be out of sync with what the in app experience is like. Right. And where are you reading this? You got a link? I will put a link to the alternate ones. And we'll have that ready for everybody who is driving along at home. Uh, they'll be able to see in the show notes. <laughs> right. And Tim. And Tim. Tim, you can see it in the chat. Yeah. I like this new uh, this color thing. That's the new color scheme for code that they've added to the uh, API reference. We talked about this before, right? Yeah, this is great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's nice being able to quickly see what was added, modified, What's or added deleted. Modified. Yep. Yeah, kind of an API level diff. Mm-hmm. All right, that's cool. So... Deprecating the table view, I mean. Yeah, this is a, a blog post uh, titled "The Case for Deprecating UI Table View" by Peter Steinberger and Michael Oaks or Ox, not sure how that's pronounced. Both who work at PSPDF Kit, which I think is a framework that deals with uh, PDF uh, generation and manipulation, that sort of thing, right? Like beyond just what you sort of get out of the box from. Uh, from iOS and, and macOS, it will do uh, fancier things. And uh, apparently is cross-platform. I think they have Android and web, if I'm not mistaken, uh, versions as well. In any case, their their blog post is titled or topic around the whole idea of, you know, does UI table view sort of really make sense anymore um, in a modern world where we have UI collection view and some of the things that sort of fall out of that, right? So they, they start out by showing their their example where 
they have sort of a table view sort of style to their particular uh, layout, uh, showing your, your documents. And they also have a more traditional sort of a grid view that you would get out of UI collection view. And they note that within iOS 10, when they're poking around the uh, public and private headers, that it, it almost seems like Apple sort of is leaning this way anyways, because they, they see these uh, like UI collection view table layout header, uh, UI collection view table cell header, and, and other things that sort of sound like, oh, wow, maybe it will be replaced. And they talk a little bit about the history where, um, you know, it came out pretty early in, in iOS's life cycle. Um, looks like it was what iOS two iPhone OS two uh, back in the day. When I look at it, it's, I'll talk about it personally, right? Like I remember sitting there at WWDC was it 2012 when iOS six came out and thinking, wow, this UI collection view is pretty awesome. Kind of makes sense given the way they showed that you can have hmm. these different layouts. I, I went to one of the um, uh, what do you call it, the labs, and I'd ask the engineers like, hey, like is this sort of the new thing? Should we sort of like abandon UI table view uh, and just have a, a style that uh, or a layout that will sort of mimic it. And they were a little sort of dodgy on the questions, kind of dodged it a little bit. They kind of said, well, <laughs> table view has a lot of performance optimizations in it and a lot of assumptions that it can make that uh, collection view can't because of uh, the way it has to do its layout engine. Um, and especially being sort of like auto layout uh, in mind, because that also came out that year. Um, and a couple other things, right? But I, I kind of got what I thought was the hint of like, it will happen at some point. Of course, I didn't realize that we would go five years later <laughs> before this sort of thing sort of comes up again, right? Uh, but, but I think this article is really good because they talk about some of the, the weirdo things in it, like the fact that when you do batch updates, which are really easy and seamless to do in collection views, you have to do this weird sort of um, begin and end updates, almost like doing... Uh, core animation, old school core animation. Right? Yeah, yeah. We'd have to Three commit months. transaction type stuff. Yeah, um, and it like darn near everything is deprecated in UI table view cell. Auto layout acts a little funky. Like the resizing table cells work pretty well, but I do see weirdo things like they talk about where you'll get unsatisfiable constraints for who knows what reason. I've got mm -hmm. my bag of tricks to work around that. And then display sizes and size classes weren't really sort of in anybody's mind when UI table view came out. So it kind of doesn't really play too well with that where right now you're, you're probably left either making, as I described before, like your own uh, sort of table layout that you want to use, or perhaps switching between the two, which can be kind of awkward because their data sources don't work quite the same. So uh, I don't know. Uh, Thoughts, guys, have you guys had a chance to read the article? Uh, thoughts on, you know, using UI table view versus collection view and, and would this make sense if it were to come? Yeah, I'm a big fan of collection views, like from a layout point of view, but I think, think the minute they came out, I started looking at them and using them in my apps. And I've often wondered, because it is, I think it's a subset of UI, they're very similar, very related, related, sorry, they're related in a lot of different ways. There's a bit more work to be done in collection views, but I'm looking here in this documentation or in this article you posted, and these, these have appeared in iOS 10 as these new table layout attributes and, and things like that we can use now, right? Inside of collection view. Yes, is that what I'm reading correctly? Uh, some of these I uh, don't believe are, not all of them that are in the list in this article are public. Oh, oh I see. Right, yeah. right, right. But it, you know, for people sort of digging around, they're like, well, this sort of seems 
um, like Apple wants to go this direction, but it wasn't ready for prime time right, uh, right. for iOS 10 when maybe hypothetically it could be an iOS 11. Ah. Yeah, I think this is a pretty interesting thing. I mean, this is this is definitely something they could do. There are a couple of things that they don't mention here that cable views can do that I don't believe collection views can do, uh, like static cells. Collection views can't do static cells, I believe. Is that right? So you're talking you like know? in storyboards and, and interface yeah, builder? Yeah, so that's right. Interface, interface builder, you can build a, a, uh, a table view that uses – it can work in two different ways. You can use the dynamic – views or maybe not maybe views the wrong word but dynamic cells uh that are the standard way where you have the the table view delegate methods and data source methods to populate or you can use static cells where you just lay them out and, and put all your text right. and put everything you want into the storyboard or, or interface builder directly uh and whatever you put in it just shows so they're not customizable but for some things, they don't really need to be customizable. The, the you know, classic cases, if you have a form with a bunch of data entry that you want, uh, where you have in each cell, you just have a label and then a, a text field, let's say, uh, and you want to have the, the table view functionality of all the scrolling and all that stuff that's built in, well, you can just use these static cells, uh, and, and, uh, and, and it greatly simplifies the setup. So you don't need to create all those, those methods. So, so that's one thing that that they, that collection views don't do. Is that a huge thing? No. I mean, you can you can do all that functionality with dynamic cells. It's it's not a it's not something that you have to have these static cells for. But it's a nice to have. It, it, it helps a little bit, and it's definitely something that they could do. It uh, in collection view, no problem. I think what they'd have to do is come up with a custom you know table table layouts uh ui layout type right so the way that they now have the the flow layouts right the, that are that are good for yeah, grids yeah. Mm-hmm. they could easily make a table layout that is that that's got a lot of that optimization specifically for the, the table view concept and and that would probably you know help a lot a lot with the setup and, and maybe they could build in this these static cells with that too I, th- I think another thing that's missing is and correct me if i'm wrong on this one but auto resizing collection view cells does that really exist i'm not sure i think it does yeah it does it it does it okay well yeah because because the one thing coming back to your first point though was um the thing about collection views is you don't get a cell like you do with table view like table views you you, you're you're given a cell and you can populate it with detail and text and icon and all kind of stuff and 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 it's got a and it's got a content view that you can tie all the content inside to that content view and and that's how the the auto Auto resizing, right? But with, with a collection view, you have to create a cell class, and you have to describe how the how the content is going to be laid out in that cell. Um, right. So, right. In, in the same sense, you could probably make a second, you know, cell class that that replicates what you were talking about in terms of a static cell. Um, and the, but the thing about the resizable cell thing, um, sure, like because you can do like a Pinterest type layout where you have two columns wide, and and then the cells are dynamically uh, scaled based on the content that goes inside of them, right? So, and you can do the logic as to whether your next cell is going to appear on the on the left side or the right side of the two column layout, if you will, right? So that but you have to do that in code, mm-hmm. right? Um, y- yeah, in a sense, yeah. right? Yeah. But so with with the resizing table views uh, cells, you can just do that all in. With with auto layer constraints and it's right, all yeah, yeah, right, automatically, right. yeah, yeah, and that's what I was saying. The difference between it seems to me the the collection view in some ways is more flexible, but you do there is a bit more prep work you have to do on building the cells, yep. like building a cell temp or cell style or whatever if you want to call it that, um, and then scaling it up in code or whatever. Yeah, 
Mm-hmm. I wonder if they could address some of this because you would definitely be losing the fact that uh, beyond the, let's say beyond the static cells, because you're right. Um, and I don't know how that works underneath the covers, but I assume it's mostly a tooling thing that uh, Interface Builder gives you. So presumably they could mm-hmm. give that same sort of tooling support to um, sure. collection views. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but, basically, it has to be. It's probably auto-generating the the data source and delegate methods right. for you because you don't write those. And if you do write those, it, it breaks it. So, so it probably <laughs> uh, that's probably all it does behind the scenes because they don't have to do anything or do much. So they just auto-generate. Right. That's my guess. Um, the other thing that would be lost here, I think, sort of getting to to Tim's point was um, you have to. You know, create the cell for UI collection, but you don't sort of like get a default one or a default set of them out of the box like you do with table view, right? If you need a simple, you know, here's some text or here's some text with a subtitle or here's some text with a uh, optional image view on there, sort of that, that iPod style look and feel that it had back in the day. Like that's pretty powerful to have out of the box. So I, I think if they ever did go to this route, it would be nice to have some of those classes sort of recreated within, you know, yeah, I think what is a, a table view styles or cell styles. I forget what they are in, in iOS, but something like that, I think would be really nice to see uh, if they ever did deprecate UI table view and completely remove it. But, you know, but if they do all these things, if they, if they do replicate all of that uh, capability in collection view, then I'm all, all for it. All for deprecating, <laughs> deprecating table view. No, it's, you know, it's simpler to have one instead of, instead that's of two. True. That's true. That's so, true. So as long as I'm not losing anything, then yeah, great. Yeah, because I, I mean, looking at collection views and playing around with them a lot, there's no reason why you couldn't have the same experience you have with a table view um, in terms of like you're having a big, long scrolling view of stuff, right? Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the one thing I like about table views, and, and maybe that goes back to the, because you said it came from iOS phone, iPhone OS 2, and that's, you know, literally, if you if you just want to display data in a row... You know, you just have to send it some data and set up a date, table, table view and delegate, and and pretty much it's out of the box. In fact, you don't even have to have a UI to do it, right? So with table view, right? You know, so you can you can actually, you know, like I said, I had to refactor my uh, device tracker app, which originally was all done in code, and and then because I wanted to have the split view on the six six plus six s plus, no six plus. You know, I had to, I didn't have to, but it was the easiest the path of least resistance for me was to use the th- uh, split view controller template that Apple provides. Right? Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Um, and, and then maybe that's another thing that, that would be sort of lost is uh, table view is so easy as a teachable way to get people into iOS development. That's true. Right. Yeah, true. Um, it, it does a lot of stuff for you that would be harder to set up like, oh, let's go create a UI collection view cells. Like, well, subclass. Like, oh, okay. What, what is that? Yeah, Why do I yeah. need that? Versus like, Hey, uh, sure. Uh, UI table view controller is maybe not the best in terms of, uh, separating out concerns, but massive view controller isn't really like a huge concern when you don't even know how to fire up the project. Right. Like you just want to get to that first successful, like, wow, I created an app and it's running on my phone sort of, um, yeah, feeling yeah. that, that new developers will need. One of one of the apps that I've always sort of used in, in teaching is is uh, called the Top Ten app, and you basically get the feed from iTunes of the top ten songs, you know, because it's one of the easy things to do, either XML or JSON that Apple will provide for you. And then, you, like you said, you just bring it in, you know, explain how to set up a table view, and 
presto change out like within an hour you've got them displaying the top 10 songs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you're teaching them how to do network layer and you're teaching them how to do table view at the same time right and they don't have to mess around a lot with the ui stuff because they get so much power exactly. out of the box and that's the name of that tune yeah <laughs> so i guess i guess we all agree you know in in concept this is a great idea but we don't want to lose anything if it happens so Apple needs to pay attention to that. <laughs> yeah, well, it would be kind of cool because, like, I, I like the idea of proto- prototype cells, right? And and there isn't really sort of yep. that concept in collection views, right? Um, you know, like like you said, Mark, one of them could be a static style, and the other one could be like displaying data dynamically, right? So, right, right. And they are adding; they've been adding like in iOS nine when I did the update for that website, RayWonderlic.com, They added in you know the the headers that, that stick at the top of the view as you scroll up. Um, and that kind of stuff. Because you have the similar sort of things. You have a header view and a, tail, a footer view, and then you have, like, uh, section headers, if you will. And with a little, not very much work, you can replicate the same experience you got with a table view as when you're scrolling up and down through large amounts of data that's broken up into, into sections, right? We're, we're, we're torn. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I think we're, we're, we're kind of all in general agreement. But I'd be curious if there are any UI table view diehards out there that are probably... Screaming at the phone right now, no! saying like, "What? No, blah blah blah." This is like why you don't it's need so to display data in a circle. What's wrong with you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I, I was I, I didn't see you at WWDC twenty twelve, Mark but uh, mind you, we didn't know each other then. But I was at that same talk, and and uh, the one funny thing about it was, remember, it was those two um, guys from Apple France that came up with collection views. And the hardest thing was following what their their talk. Oh, really? I, I, I'm I'm a little yeah, surprised yeah. considering your background in Canada that you would be more. Oh, accustomed yeah, we all to, speak French. Yeah, we all speak but French. But you should be more accustomed to, to hearing that. But yes, he he said it in a very oh. delightful way when he was talking about uh, the data source. Oh, it was cell registration. It was mm-hmm. like you know, and we loved it so much. We did it for UI C'est table view as well, and everybody cheered. It was amazing, yeah. like how much love there was for that. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, the, the 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 reality is is that the the, the French they speak in Quebec is different than the French they speak in Paris. There's a slight different intonation, right? So, ah, so that okay, yeah. so that that made it a little harder to follow along. Yeah, no, I get yes. it, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> so we move on to picks. Sure, sure. All right. Okay. So, Jaime, you have a pick here for about the Realm World Tour. Yeah, um, it's kind of a timely one. So, Realm the uh, mobile database and online syncing platform for mobile. Uh, they're doing sort of a Q&A and live technical demo and Realm community sort of get-togethers all around the world. Uh, although, uh, to be noted here, all around the world means predominantly the, um, the United States, um, Western Europe, and Eastern Asia. So my apologies if you're listening here from, like, South America or Africa. Or Canada. Well, not all of Canada. If you're in Toronto, there, there's going to be some issues in there. But uh, Vancouver, <laughs> I saw, was on the list. Oh, were they um, really? What? They are. Look, wait. Uh, the, 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 these are free events. They're, they take place in the night. It's generally, from what I've seen, 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. local time in that um, environment where they're going to have uh, presumably developers, maybe product managers or something. It, it looks like it depends on the particular event talking about the platform and giving you some sort of swag, probably t-shirts given the icon they gave here, but sort of giving you the what's going on in, in business and technical pitch for why should you choose Realm? I've signed up for the one that's going on in uh, Seattle 
which I'm quite fortunate to be around. As far as the list goes, one in San Francisco. Yes, they're headquartered there, so it kind of makes sense that that would be uh, number one coming up in what's that, February fifteenth? That's Flag Day in Canada, by the way. Oh, cool. All right. (laughs) Yeah, the the locations here are a little funny. Like I was sort of joking online that like I feel like the locations were chosen based on the metric of where do we have some remote developers working for Realm? Okay, let's have a meetup there, sort of thing. Because there's some, you know, the big ones you kind of expect, uh, New York City, London, Beijing. Uh, but then I get into some, uh, to me, sort of odder ones. Like, all right, they have one in Seoul, South Korea. But then they also have one in Busan, South Korea, which is a little surprising. A little surprising. I, I'm not familiar with that one. Right? Uh, you're going to have one in Tokyo, Japan. But then you're also going to have one in Osaka. That's that's a little curious to me. And and sort of speaks to, hmm, maybe this is where their people tend to work. I don't know. Well, they're kind of hedging their bets, too, though. I see I'm looking at some of these places like Beijing or whatever that have an I'm interested button, and the Vancouver one has I'm interested. Do you think they're doing a head count there to see how much interest there is in those neighborhoods? Could be, because those do have a to-be-announced date, so, so, so it could be. Well, Vancouver, yeah, TBA, right? Yeah, it's him. I'm not sure what the, what's the closest one for you then. New York City? New York City. New York City or Boston. Yeah. Or I could also go to Vancouver, too. Bit of a, oh, bit that's, of hike, so. that's well across the entire yeah. continent. Yeah, you might. Uh, Chicago would be closer to you in the United States. True. Heck, even Chicago, Dallas yeah, would probably been, be. Dallas would be closer to you, too. That's true. I haven't been to Chicago. That'd be, that would be a good place to go. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure Porter Airlines flies to you know, Chicago, New York, and uh, Boston. Well, if you can get your company to pay for it, you should go to uh, Zurich or, or uh, <laughs> Barcelona or some well, other friend of the show, Marin Tordoff, lives in, lives in, works for Realm, and he lives in uh, Barcelona currently. So that sort of does fit with Jaime's theory. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Mar- Barcelona, why, why not Madrid? You know, um, let's see, Munich, Beijing, Cincinnati well, is fact, a little surprising he's, he's the, as well. He's the speaker. Oh, wait, I should go to London. That's what I should according do. To the, uh, according to the website. Is he? Yeah, yeah, is the speaker. Yeah. Yep. Well, there you go. Yep. So, mm-hmm. yep. cool. Makes sense. So that's the world tour. Mark, you're, you've signed up for the San Francisco one. Right? I have. Yep. Yep. On Flag Day. Uh, day after. Oh no, you're right. It's Flag Day. <laughs> day after Valentine's Day. Yep. Yeah, maybe we can convince Greg to to sign up as well. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I'm sure he'd want to go. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he knows about it already too. Yeah, that's true. Well, he, <laughs> he, he got he got the invite before afternoon. everybody else. <laughs> I believe he lives right around where the uh, where the talk is too, so it could not. Oh, be right. Oh. Yep. Hmm. Yeah, that's in the south of Market area, which is kind of the startup land in San Francisco. Right. Oh, he's JC JP Simard. I was watching a, a talk by him earlier today. He's uh, were, were you at? Yeah, you were at the um, NS North that we had in um, uh, Montebello. What was it? Uh, yeah, the Chateau Montebello. Chateau Montebello, yes. Mm-hmm. JP mm-hmm. Samard did one of the one of the talks there. Was that the one where he did the talk on um, like swizzling in Swift, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. or Objective C, and like how something they like that? My my mm-hmm. brain still hurts from that talk. Yeah, yeah. Swizzling in Swift. Well, no, like, like what, really what was... you give up um, by going to Swift, and what the the close oh. approximations were at that time. I think Swift one was the mm. was the hotness then. Yeah, the watch has just come out, remember? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I remember staying up to like 3 in the morning or waking up at 3 in the morning, you know, Eastern time to do that. So, yeah, that's right. Oh, wow, that takes me back. 
<laughs> it wasn't really that long ago, but it does feel like so long ago. <laughs> yeah, it was, well, it was a year and almost two years ago, right? Yeah. All right. So I've got a couple of, uh, oh, Mark, do you have a pick? I do. It's kind of a quick, just, just for fun one. Uh, so as most people probably know, the Super Bowl is coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, the uh, New England Patriots are once again going to the Super Bowl. I'm happy about that. And playing the Atlanta Falcons, which will be kind of an interesting should be a good game, actually, because they're both good teams. Uh, but uh, in honor of the Super Bowl, Tostitos, the corn chip snack food <laughs> maker, uh, is actually doing something very interesting. They have special packaging uh, that they that they're have making available for the uh, for the game, where you can it can detect whether you've been drinking alcohol. Somehow. What? Yeah. So if it detects alcohol, it will flash a little don't drink and drive emblem on the bag. And if you hold up your phone, and there's no details of how it works, but if you huh. hold up your phone to the bag, it will order an Uber for you and you get $10 off on the trip. So, you know, not that I necessarily recommend eating Tostitos or drinking at Super Bowl, but if you're going to do both, <laughs> you might as well use this to make sure that you don't drink and drive and get a get a discount taking your Uber on the way back. I think it's actually kind of a great thing. That's cool, yeah. There's there's a link here that we'll put in the in the show notes uh, where you can actually see a video of the bag in action. Uh, obviously, it doesn't uh, show it detecting the alcohol. You have to take the word for it, but uh, it's uh, it's kind of an amazing thing, you know. And, and it's it's kind of it kind of shows the shows where we've come in terms of technology that just mm-hmm. in, in a throwaway throwaway snack food bag uh you can have all this technology that will you know order you a, a ride home if, if you've been drinking and it uh, does some community service at the same time it's great but then again the only way to save ten dollars on the ride home is to drink so well, i feel like this sure. is a cross-cultural <laughs> thing but um snacking and drinking are Huge traditions for of course yes. the Super yes. Bowl yes. in America. Super Bowl. So. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Right. And I and I guess the idea is, if you're gonna be drinking at Super Bowl, you should be taking an Uber or something home anyway. That's true. Yeah. And, and there. You, you, yeah. And and well, yeah. There you, you have to get there, of course. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you might as well uh, take advantage of of Costitos, uh yeah, offer. Yeah. I, I won't say it's generosity, but take take advantage of their offer. Yeah, and the NFC sensor thing is presumably only available for uh, Android users, unfortunately. Um, so hopefully we'll get that sort of capability in future versions of yeah. iOS. Because apparently this is for, like, you know, I'm so wasted that, you know, I can't even think about how to use Uber, so it'll just you know, <laughs> trigger trigger well, the Uber app and presumably have a, like, take-me-back-home route. And if you've, yeah, if you've used yeah. Apple Pay... Or not Apple Pay, um, Android Pay. Presumably, you could just use like your fingerprint, you know, on whatever device, like the Google Pixel, to do that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you you can be, um, not that we recommend it, but you could be way more sloshed, um, right, as right. an Android user than you can as an iOS user in this uh, implementation. But it, but it does say, it, it does say in the article that the the bag actually does quote has the ability to detect traces of alcohol on someone's breath. So if you do that and you see. You see it flashing, telling you "Don't drink and drive." Even if you're an iPhone user, I think you're you're more likely to do the right thing if you're actually seeing that in front of you. So, so it's it's good for everybody. Yes, indeed, mm. pretty mm. cool tech. Yep, that is pretty cool. Yep. 
All right. I don't normally do this, but um, I actually have a few picks. Actually, one of them was, uh, we should have probably talked about it before I started into this, because it, it could be technically follow-up as opposed to uh, a pick. But anyway, I'll go, I'll go through the picks first of all. So last week, just after we did the show, um, Apple rolled out um, a new uh, version of the Human uh, Interface Guidelines, which is an online resource. And at the bottom of it, they have, uh, under the Resources tab, They've got some downloadable Photoshop or Sketch templates that you can use to build UI to work out your UI. And they've got a couple of quick little videos at the bottom as well to sort of explain how you would go about using those things. But uh, uh, we've been, as designers of, of UI, wanting we've been wanting to have um, uh, Apple provide us with uh, bits and pieces that we could use to put together our apps um, for a long, long time, right? So... So kudos to Apple for that. So you, you know, iOS Human Interface Guidelines, put a link in the show notes for that. Yeah, I took a look at that um, b- before yeah. we go on there. And it's actually pretty extensive. So I, I watched the, what, three or four videos that they talk about, like, how to use it. And um, it, it's got pretty extensive stuff. It's got, like, app icons, uh, sticker pack uh, layouts, um, all the different UI elements you would expect, um, even things like um, like share sheets and so forth. The curious one, uh, and I wasn't the first one to notice this, uh, my attention uh, was brought to it uh, via Twitter, and I don't have the link because I don't remember where. I was just sort of randomly looking through. There is a layout that has um, black background and orange tint instead of white background Mm -hmm. blue tint. And that got everybody wondering, like, does this hint at a dark mode for iOS? Uh, A little bit different than uh, the night shift, which we didn't talk about it. Uh, for the betas for Mac OS, but just like iOS has the night shift mode that will uh, give you more of a, a warm orangish hue instead of the blue light, um, you know, during the, the nighttime phase, uh, they're bringing that to, to Mac OS as well. In this case, the dark mode has been sort of rumored for a very long time. And it's, it's very curious that they would include that color set in this, uh, in this list. Um, right, right. Don't know if it's a hint, but it looked pretty interesting to me. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. There's a lot in this dark mode. You know, it's got segmented controls and everything that are all using the same orange on black color scheme, which is pretty interesting. It may mean nothing, though, of course. <laughs> yeah, it might have just <laughs> been the design team having fun for all we know. Yeah, right. right. But if you're familiar with uh, with uh, Photoshop, um, the if you, when you double-click on the elements that they provide for you, they do. Uh, you, they're actually a lot of smart objects. So, which basically means you can go in and change the. It opens them up in a sort of second version, second layer, if you will. Uh, if it's an Illustrator file, it'll open up in Illustrator, and you can change the the color scheme. You can change the tint colors, that kind of stuff. So, um, in terms of, it's not you're not just going to get your plain Jane white and blue layout that you that you normally get with you out of the box, but you'll be able to you know demonstrate build UI that looks like a darker app or whatever, and that may be why. They They've included that, but uh, but you're right. A, a, the dark mode does seem kind of interesting too. But uh, but anyway, that's that's sort of a, a, a sort of the inside baseball v- a version of using Photoshop and with uh, this kind of design. And that's it's it's good to see that they've actually provided that kind of stuff. But there have been templates in the past which were sort of you know you had to cut them out of a larger Photoshop file and sort of string them together yourself. And but it didn't tie in co- as closely as this does to the actual UI. And how you would use it, like with UI appearance and that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And and coming straight from the source, right? Like there's been 
a lot of the yes. community that goes through and says, oh, um, iOS 10 just came out. What are the new things? And create a whole, what, artboard? I don't know what Photoshop uses. Uh, Sketch uses sure. artboards. Yeah, um, they use artboards in Photoshop now. So it's nice to see it come directly from the source because presumably they're using this too. So that's great. So do, you, do you have a Sketch for me? I do. I still have a functioning version of Sketch from just before they went to the subscription version. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. And, oh, that reminds me. I... If I'm not mistaken, you do need the San Francisco font because I had some older version of it and it complained about that when I opened up the files. Oh, really? I thought it came with. One of the videos mm. said it came with it somewhere. Maybe I was just that far just, out of I'm date. Just, it, it, actually, font it, it, is, it is included in the uh, in the directory that you download. I'm just opening the, the files the right now, too. Yeah. yeah. And I, By the way, I'm using, I'm using Pixelmator to look at these instead of Photoshop, and it, it works fine. If anyone wonder. Yeah, oh, no. nice. Yeah, yeah. I've yep. used that app before. It also yeah. it also comes nice. with uh, some uh, color picker libraries as well that you can uh, slap into. Um, I guess these are for Photoshop, actually. The new version, so it can build like a color, like a swatch library, if you will, for your. So maybe it complained Jim, because what, what's I had. A, what's an what's a .asc file? I think that's what I'm talking about. That's the uh, Adobe. What does it say? Image Exchange, I think. Uh, okay. Okay. But I think uh, that, Pixelmator won't open that for whatever right. it is. I, I don't, I don't know. Watch ex- it says Swatch Exchange. I'm going to double click on and see if if my Photoshop even knows what to do with it. I'm using. I was opening an Illustrator. Let's see what happens. Could blow up my whole computer. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't bought into the um, whole. Uh, yeah, so it cannot be used with this, right? Um, I haven't bought into. I haven't bought into the whole car, uh, Creative Cloud thing yet. So I'm still using uh, Photoshop CS or uh, Creative Suite CS6. And so a lot of the tools that are coming out now for Photoshop and, and some of the iOS apps that come from Adobe have this sort of interchange thing with your with your Adobe Creative Cloud account. And, of course, since I haven't bought into that, um, I'm using Affinity uh, Des- <laughs> Designer, thanks to Tammy and having me download that last week, and Acorn and looking at some alternatives. And I may actually go to Sketch at some point. But but you said it's a subscription now for Sketch, right? I, mean, I think it's like a yearly. We talked about it uh, way back, uh, maybe several months ago yeah. by now. Maybe it's been an entire year by now um, that they were switching subscription models where it's more or less like as if you were buying the the app every year. Um, right, right. I haven't done enough to sort of you know really justify that cost for my needs. So I'm using a very old, crusty version of, of Sketch. Yeah, and that's my issue with the whole Creative Cloud thing. I don't do nearly as much work now, you know, that I'm working for the man than I would have done in the past with these tools uh, when I was doing a lot of more web development and, and desktop layout and that kind of stuff, right? So paying, you know, $40 a month or whatever it is, $50 a month Canadian for um, Creative Cloud doesn't make sense for me economically, right? I don't, it doesn't, doesn't, work, doesn't work out. So there should be there should be other choices for people like me. Oh, well, um... So that's yeah, that's the uh, update to update to the iOS human interface guidelines. And next we have so this is more of a, as Mark likes to say a pro tip. Um, I've known about this for a while, and that is instead of using Photoshop files or Sketch files that are that are um, uh, raster images, which basically are you know you have to make them in the three different sizes. You have the one X, the two X, and the three X. And I think there's some jumbo size for the iPad Pro now for some uh, assets. And now that even with the messages, you have to create even smaller icons uh, for those if you want to use the the um, sticker packs. Um, mm-hmm. You have to provide smaller icons for the for the for the message app to show as well. 
a tip you can do you can, instead of, instead of using a, a PNG file or a JPEG file, you can actually if you create the icon you're create you want to use in a vector app like um, Adobe Photoshop or, or Adobe Illustrator, you can save it out as an Adobe PDF. And then you can put it right into your asset library in Xcode and use it the one file, and and the OS will automatically scale it up for all the different sizes. So, you you basically put the file into your into your asset library. You make a call to the you know uh, UI image image named blah blah blah, you know in icon whatever, um, and you. In my case, I had to give it the height and width uh, on the next line as, as another attribute, and then it automatically scaled it. And I just uh, did an update uh, yesterday for one of our apps that we're refactoring. Um, we're taking our we have like a settings gear that we're using, um, so I had that as a vector, and I basically put it into the app. You know, put it in one time, and it renders on the iPad Pro as a larger version than it does on the iPhone six, for instance. And it's just great. So if you're into, and I've got a link here in the show notes on a quick how to do this. This has been available since Xcode 7, but we really haven't talked about it on this show. And even though I knew about it, I've never actually actually tried it out. So it's super simple to do. Um, create, a, create your artwork for your icons and buttons and what have you um, in a vector app. Um, and I'm, I'm using Illustri- Adobe Illustrator, but I'm sure you can probably use other tools like um, the one from Draw. I think it's called Draw iDraw or something like that. And the problem, uh, does Sketch, Sketch do vector artwork, Jaime? Yes, and uh, I think Sketch is new enough. Um, another sort of mini pro tip is to make sure, uh, depending on your environment, that people are using a version of Photoshop that is new enough to uh, to create the correct kind of uh, yeah. PDF. Um, in whatever corporate environment I was dealing with, uh, they had a much older version, and so hmm. it needs to be like a very... I say newer, but it's not really that new, right? It was just, you know, corporate environments sometimes don't always have like the newest stuff. Uh, in this case, like just making sure that it's creating the the right kind of vector PDF and not sort of like the old school, like, hey, I turned this Microsoft Word document into a PDF <laughs> sort of sort of route, right? And, and I think you'll be fine. But I ran into that issue where it, it I think it turned into like a black square or something because Xcode didn't know what to do with it. Right. Well, I'm using I'm using um, uh, Illustrator CS6, so I'm, I'm using the version from three, four years ago, so it's fine. And I've got it, like I said, because of uh, Tammy's uh, suggestion last week, I got the Affinity Designer, and I'll probably I can probably try it out in that as well. So I think, like you said, most modern apps should be able to do this, right? Right. I did try SVG for those people who are thinking, well, I can use an SVG, but SVG didn't render at all, so I don't know what, what this deal with SVG is. It's the same file, right, essentially. I guess the wrapper or the header and all that kind of stuff is different, but... Um, yeah, the, as mm-hmm. far as the as far as the vector information, it's the same stuff. Right? It's still Bezier uh, tools or Bezier tools to make those. Yeah, pretty cool. I mean, it, you know, as we move into these more and more different sized uh, devices, we're gonna have to provide more different size icons and stuff. So, yeah, this is this adds some future proofing to your app. Yeah, for sure. No, no more going back to your app after not having looked at it for a while and finding out that there's 28 different new icon configurations that right, yeah. you don't have in there. Yeah. <laughs> All right, the last pick is, um, and it could have been some follow-up, and that is a listing by a gentleman named, let's pull up his name, this is on Medium, by Pavel Bailetki. And he's listed off 33 iOS open source libraries that he believes will dominate in 2017. And just some of the highlights that I noticed in here were IG List Kit, which we talked about before. That's the one from in, um, Instagram. Uh, Realm for... Um, database, uh, in, in-app database stuff. Um, there's an interesting one here by Ash Furrow called Moya, 
which I haven't really looked at, but uh, he promised it promises to simplify your network layer um, between your app and say something like Alamo Fire, uh, Swifty JSON, which we think we've talked about before, uh, Firebase, obviously, uh, Async Display Kit, which we've mentioned before. That's another framework from the fa- Facebook folks. I thought it was interesting as I scrolled through this list. Oh, there's one here called um, Chameleon, which lets you, as we were talking about just a few minutes ago, about being able to skin your app with different colors. Um, which would be kind of cool. Get past that one. But the one I thought was kind of interesting, and I hadn't really played with it, but there's one here that lets you create code from a storyboard storyboard file. So you, you lay out the storyboard the way you want it, and then apparently this framework will uh, generate um, some code for you to be able to work with. And it's called Natalie by uh, Marin... I'm not going to try and say his last name. Marcin, sorry, Marcin Krajanowski. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> Have you guys looked at this list? RX Swift is another one. Yeah, and and I was going to point out that RX Swift for the reactive extensions sort of programming thing mm-hmm. um, has been really hot in the industry. So um, I think that's one that that we might want to really keep an eye on. And that you know, if you're doing stuff with networking, you're doing stuff with UI, which is just about everybody, right? Uh, except or maybe games, which can sort of go sideways from that. You probably will want to take a look at that because it's got a lot of interesting stuff in it that it seems to make these things easier because they're based on observing events and and sort of dealing with groups of events and reacting to them rather than sort of declaratively, uh, uh, sorry, imperatively saying, do this, then do that, check this other thing, and if this is true, go do that. Right, right. Um, but I, I think the ones that you picked out were definitely... Pretty top-notch ones to, to keep an eye on. There's Alamo Fire here, Swifty Store Kit, Crypto Swift, which is another one I'm interested in, FS Calendar, if you want to put a calendar in your app. Well, like I said, there's 33 of them here. It's a pretty simple thing. We'll put a sh- link in the show notes for that. So for those, those of us driving at home, Jaime, you kind of sort of touched on what Reactive is. but And that's that's bit you're like, because somebody, it, it, how do you, how do you, what are you reacting to? I don't understand that part. So I think... I'll describe sort of briefly my limited not having used it in any serious way sort of description. Um, and then maybe we'll table sort of further discussion for, you know, future show topic, because there's a, a couple of different blog posts that I would probably want to review and share with the listeners around this. But the basic idea is that rather than, than saying something like, okay, well, uh, okay, I've got a perfect analogy. So you know how in, traditional sort of imperative ways of we've done for loops where we said, Hey, I've got this array and I'm going to create my index into then save, you know, from index zero all the way to, you know, less than the count of indexes increment. And then within that, do something to it, right? Like add, you know, 10 to every element in my um, array of integers. Right. And, and in Swift, we have a much more Swifty way of doing that where we can use map and say, ah, oh, well, I can just make this nice little closure that will, go in and do that operation on every one of those um, bits without me having to necessarily specify an order, nor really care about things like, whoops, off by one sort of problems, because you can't have an off by one in the map function. Think of it like that sort of analogy where rather than saying, okay, well, I have a button and when they tap this button, I'm going to increment a counter and then when that counter is incremented, I'm also going to update a text label and have to worry about all of that and making sure you don't, you know, 
have things get out of sync, you observe events that are coming out of things. So it's a little bit different than KVO in that it's not like spooky action at a distance. You can sort of see the connections happen because you are explicitly saying like, I want to observe this event. Um, but then you could do other things like I want to uh, coalesce these events, right? So like in a, what's been called like a debouncing sort of situation where, okay, only if the user has tapped the button, you know, a minimum of three times, am I even going to do anything? Or think of like uh, search UIs where only after the user has put in at least three text characters and hasn't tapped in another character within, you know, 500 milliseconds, will we actually kick off the network request rather mm. than doing network Great. request, network request, network request, so on and so forth. Hmm. So I, again, a future show topic, cause it's, it's more than just like a sidebar conversation. And, and I'm honestly not like the best resource for it. So I'd definitely be interested if anybody has uh, better resources, but I'll, I'll try to collect something for that for a future episode. Cool. Do you know what the performance impact of that is? It seems like there's a lot of overhead. So I think if I had to guess, the performance impact would be probably largely negligible for broad categories of apps. Um, but of course, if you're doing something like, like gaming uh, or high performance um, statistical analysis or something, uh, you probably wouldn't want to use it for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. But, you know, take a picture, upload it, favorite it, you know, that sort of thing where you're not really... Um, super dependent on CPU performance. Like I think uh, you missed the previous episode where we were talking about Instagram's sort of hack for getting around um, deep color management stuff. Cause they, they use an OpenGL pipeline. And since that's not color, uh, sorry, that's not, uh, that doesn't support wide color. They just behind the scenes, shove it into an image view, which is wide color supported. And then they put that on the screen. So they, they fully acknowledge that for, you know, for high performance stuff like 3D games, that that technique would not have worked. But in their use case, it did. Hmm. Okay. Hmm. All righty then. <laughs> yeah. Did you say 33 of these and they're probably all CocoaPods enabled. So yeah, just go, just go add them all right now. I mean, it's only like 30, it's only 33 lines in your pod file, right? No, I'll put them in, I'll put them in the pod deck countdown. <laughs> It's like Mark's nightmare right there. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's hurting me. <laughs> you know, and if you're lucky, you don't even need to write your app. It just, you know, you just wire all the stuff up, connect it to each other and sure. go for coffee. <laughs> yeah. If you throw up enough bricks into the air enough times, yeah. eventually <laughs> they will turn into a wall for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you have to throw 14 trillion bricks up, though, to do that. Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Or they could just turn into a big pile of bricks right okay well i guess that's it for the week uh, folks um so jaime if people want to find you on the interwebs where they look they would go to twitter because i am at dev of the hair and mark if people want to write you a cursive letter or send you a telegram or something mark r at smapsoft.com all right and i'm tim mitra t-i-m-m-i-t-r-a on twitter and that's the best way to get a hold of me and we'll see you guys next week bye goodbye bye You've just experienced the More Than Just Code podcast. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you'll find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items that we talk about on the show, picks for the episode, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website and write a review on iTunes. If you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press the recommend button. It really helps others find out about the show. 
You can also follow the show on Twitter at MTJC underscore podcast. If you'd like to support the show, you can pledge any amount on patreon.com slash MTJC. Thanks again for listening. The Super Bowl thing. When's that happening? This Sunday? Uh, a week from Sunday. A week from Sunday. So we're, I guess yeah, we're down we to four. This, this Sunday is the, the Pro Bowl, which gets the um, the people who are voted to be the best or in recent sort of modern times, like the most interesting characters uh, on yeah. the field. Um, it's hmm. kind of like the all-star games that you see. It doesn't mean right. anything. And you won't see any of the Super Bowl participants in it because nobody wants yeah, to get that's, injured. Yeah, that's the, the weird before. thing about it. So, Well, and, yeah, and, and in fact, they're... I, I, they may, yeah, they may be specifically not allowed to play, actually. But I'm not 100 percent sure on that. Uh, but thankfully, unlike baseball, um, the NFL's championship game is not impacted in any way by the outcome of the of the uh, All Star game. So, or oh, really, Pro Bowl in this case, baseball. Yeah. They count the one in baseball. Yeah, that one. Yeah, that the, determines who the home team is in the World Series. Oh, you're right. kidding me! I never knew that. It's the it's the American League against the National League. Right. Yeah. Of course. Game. Yeah. And. And until until about five years ago, maybe maybe longer, but it seems like it's five years roughly. Uh, it it wasn't like that, and nobody would watch the All Star Game, and players would not even show up to the All Star Game. So they introduced this to try to stir up some interest and make it give oh, it make it more value. make it count something for something. Yeah, huh. yeah. It's it's not super clear that it's had a big impact, but right. yeah, but it, but it does have some impact. But coming back to the Super Bowl now. Um... I think last year you were telling me that there's there's enough to make three divisions and they have to, some sort of wild card thing, or am I thinking of base, baseball again? Uh, Probably baseball, based on sure. what you just described. Because you said three divisions, which there are. There's, in baseball, there's the, the East, the Central, and the West. Um, in, each league, in each league, so there's actually six divisions. Right. Uh, but in, in football, there's actually eight. Division. Eight, okay, right. And we're down to are we down to the final two teams? We know who those are. Final two teams. Yep, we know it's the Patriots against the Falcons. Correct. Yeah. And that's one of the Brady guys or whatever his name is. Tom Brady is the is the quarterback for the New England Patriots. Yes. Right. So the Patriots mm-hmm. versus the Falcons, you said. The Atlanta Falcons. Oh. Yep. Hmm. Interesting. Should be an interesting game. Should be a high scoring game because they're both very offensive teams. I was trying to think of who who really matches up and. It clearly it wasn't Green Bay because they got destroyed by they got crushed yeah. by Atlanta. Um, I think Atlanta was probably a, a really good choice. I would have loved to yeah. see my Dallas Cowboys there, but they they weren't ready as a team. Although I think yeah. we would have given a much better game than Green Bay did because we've only lost by fewer three or fewer points for for the three losses we had this year. We never mm. got blown out of the water. Yeah, yeah. How many games did they play in a year? They play sixteen regular season games. Okay, yeah, right. And then, and then either two or three. No, sorry, three or well, up to up to three playoff games, including two. And it's that few games because it takes three, a lot of wear and no. tear on them, or whatever. No, no, it's because it's it's a tournament and you get eliminated. So if you if you're a wild card team, you can play in the wild card round, the divisional round, the championship round, and then potentially Super Bowl if you make it that far. Right. Uh, if you're if you're one of the two top teams in each conference, 
uh, there's two conferences, then you play potentially in three games because you get to skip the wild card week. Mm-hmm. So you can play up to three games. But if you lose, you're you're done. So so uh, uh, so yeah. So maximum of nineteen games that you can play in a season. Mm. Oh really? But no, twenty. Twenty. If you're a wild card team that win, that makes the Super Bowl, you can win twenty. Right. right. Yeah. Right. And then at the aforementioned Pro Bowl that happens this week is a week a week off for the Super Bowl contenders right. between the championship game and um, the Super and Bowl the Super itself. Bowl. So it's an extra week off, right? Like you're just kind of sitting there, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Right. Getting all flabby and stuff. <laughs> well, well, bad things have happened. There, there was a period of time where, like, you know, guys would go to Mexico, guys would do bad things. Um, in fact, I think it was the Falcons where the guy ended up getting busted for prostitution and all sorts of things. Like, this is, like, the danger time for these teams where the coaches mm. will really have to watch their players. Let them have fun. Let them enjoy themselves. But be like, yo, guys, like, you know, have a normal week. You know, don't go crazy. Don't yeah. end up in the news. It's like wrangling yeah. wrangling developers, right? So, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Except if we were you know, hot commodities with millions of dollars in our pockets. <laughs> uh, and, 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 20, and 24 years old. <laughs> yeah, 24 yeah. years old right. with millions of dollars. Yeah, yeah. It's a dangerous combination. But uh, I have an opportunity to go to California in a couple of weeks, so I'm going to be hanging out with Mark for a couple of days. Well, if <laughs> yeah. you're going somewhere around the 15th of February, maybe you guys can go to that Realm World Tour that we're going to talk about tonight. Oh, is that? Oh, really? Oh, is that that's that week? Right. Well, free <laughs> free registration, so I wouldn't I wouldn't hold out too long in trying to decide on that since it won't cost you anything. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, you know, um, I do have a car when I'm down there, but like I said, I, I don't know what the what the team expectation is. Right on my list of things to do is I, I you know since we've been talking about it on the show is to go to the computers computer museum, which yeah. which I think is a, I saw that in when it was in Boston, so I'm, I'm assuming it's the same thing. But I guess it's got newer newer stuff, I guess, right? And uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 really cool. Uh, so yeah, and it's and it's very close by. So uh, it's in uh, Mountain View, I believe. Yeah, it's right. It's right next door to Google, uh, which is a couple of miles at most away. Right, right. Um, yeah, which means yeah. you know, in, in rush hour traffic, it's still forty five minute drive. <laughs> but uh, yeah, okay. But if you don't go during rush hour, no, it's, it's not forty five minutes. That's an exaggeration. But it's you know, if you go during non rush hour, it's ten minutes away. Very very easy to get to. Yeah. So, uh, and then there's, there's some guy named Greg who wants me to go to this company, have a tour, and mm-hmm. yeah, Facebook, right? So that's a little bit further away. That's up in Menlo Park. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah, I, I know I've driven. I'm pretty sure. I can't remember. I'm sure Carol would know if we've been to San Jose before. I thought we had. You were thinking we might have been the other the other side of the the river or lake or whatever the hell it is from you guys, right? Bay or whatever. What's on the other side? There's other side of what? Ge- geographically from San Jose. Uh, so San Jose is kind of at the bottom of the bay. Yeah. So I mean, technically, if you want to say the other side of the bay, that's uh, Napa, <laughs> but but that's not what you mean. I know. So <laughs> um, so you know, so San Jose, yeah, is is kind of the the, the south shore of the bay, mm-hmm. um, and uh, Cupertino is a little bit up the west side, and uh, on the east side, there's like Fremont, and then eventually you get to. Oakland, Berkeley, but that's that's really far up. That's yeah. No, we we were heading down down south to Monterey. So, but where's the boardwalk? Is there a boardwalk and sort of a roller coaster? Is that San Jose or that's, is that that's Santa Cruz? Santa Cruz. Okay, Santa that's Cruz. what I'm thinking of. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which is right down the road from yeah. San Jose. 
Yeah, see, I thought that was San Jose from my memory, but I just Santa something. Saint something. Uh, yep, yep. <laughs> it's all saints. All there right. are a lot of them. Yep. It's on the old California missions. Uh, you know, the, there were oh, right. there something like 13 missions that were founded, and they all had names of saints. So uh, anytime you – not every time, but most of the time when you find a city that has a saint or a santa uh, name, they, uh, they came from the mission. That was so they were they were there to basically convert all the heathens to yeah, Christianity. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right.